But what would you say, if I asked you this question, what is the, if, if you could in one word, if you could in one word tell me what the storyline of this book is, what would you say? You'd say Jesus? Any other ideas? What's that? I didn't hear that. Grace. I can't hear over on this side, so grace. Thank you, Nate. Any others? Salvation. Any others? Actually, we are people of this book. And so what that means is we believe that we, we set our faith and our practice by this book. That means what we believe is determined by this book and how we live is determined by this book. And for a lot of people, this is a very confusing book that are Christians. There is a lot of surveys that say very few people read this book. I know a lot of new believers they start reading through it and they come across names in the book of Numbers like, uh, let me just open up to one, see if there's any strange names in here. It's not my sermon, don't worry about it. But people say, all right, like even the word Canaanite, what is that? Meribeth, what is that? You know, so they say, this is nothing to do with me. And so a lot of people stop reading this book. But if you understand the purpose of this book and what it's trying to communicate, it will help you understand the flow of the book. And some of the answers were in one word, Jesus. You're right, it is about Jesus. But it's about, if you combine it with salvation, it's about how Jesus delivers us. Really, the whole book is about deliverance. Deliverance not in the hillbilly banjo way, but deliverance in the way that there is a terrible situation going on and we need to be freed from it. The, actually, the definition of deliverance really means to be rescued from a horrible ordeal and then to be set free. And if you understand this, you'll see time and time again, over and over again in the Bible, stories are all about deliverance. How the people of Israel get in all kinds of problems and so God brings forth a prophet, that prophet helps deliver them. Or then you get to the New Testament and these people for 400 years have been in darkness and silence and along comes this light in the form of a child born in Bethlehem who has come to deliver his people from their sins. So the whole storyline is about deliverance. Well today we're going to talk about deliverance but it's going to be deliverance illustrated. There's a magazine when I was a little kid my first one was Sports Illustrated. It was sports, but illustrated. Today we are going to hear deliverance, but in a very vivid, lively, drastic form. And so today's story is going to be deliverance, but illustrated for you, so you will not forget it. So if you're going to open up the Genesis, chapter 6, verses 12 through 7:13, we're going to read some of what Pastor Ken read last week, but what you'll see is we're going to highlight the story of what deliverance is all about. So chapter 6, 12 is where we're going to begin of Genesis. And if you notice, if you've been finely attuned to our stage lately, it has slowly been progressing. If you notice when the fall came, the trees started falling over. Last week when we began on flood part one, there was wood that was stacked up getting ready to build an ark. Did anybody of you notice that last week? Yes, excellent. 
This week, if you notice, the rain is starting to fall and the waters are beginning to rise. So with that motif in your mind, let's start in verse 12. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits in breadth, 50 cubits in its length, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the, boar, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days... I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. So that's where we'll stop. This is deliverance in a very illustrated form. You know this story. You know this story. It is probably one of the first stories you ever heard. Noah and the ark. Usually it was told to you, too, as a kid in a fun, happy way, uh, like a whimsical never-never-land type of a story. Yeah, actually, I was talking to Boyd Kaler, and we were talking about how the Irish Rovers sang the song. You ever hear the Irish Rovers? Here's how the song goes. There were green alligators and long-necked geese, a humpty-back camels and some chimpanzees, some cats and rats and elephants, but as sure as you're born, the loveliest of all was the unicorn. Did you ever hear that song before? I used to sing that song in Irish pubs. I hate to say it, but I'd raise a green glass because it talks about how the poor unicorns, they didn't get in when it started raining. And that's why they don't have unicorns to this day. Makes you kind of sad. But it's the story's happy, kind of happy song. You know, and it's something to just, you know, remember better days. It's kind of a weird way we sing about this song. It's kind of a fun song because you've got two by two. You think you see giraffes and 
gorillas coming in and alligators coming in. So it's a very vivid story. For most of my non-thinking life, Noah and the Ark always seemed like a harmless kid's story. Noah had to build a big boat. Animals came two by two. And then they, they were all snuggled together in the ark as they sat through a, just a longer spring rain. And then mom would tuck you in the bed and you'd dream of fuzzy tigers and green alligators. And you would go to bed thinking of Noah. If you ever heard, probably not allowed to say his name in the pulpit anymore, Bill Cosby. Did you ever hear the Bill Cosby comedy? How long can you tread water, Noah? You remember, I remember I laughed at that like crazy. And so this is the story we know. That's the story, this nice two-by-two story, animal cracker story. But today I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is dark. If it's a real story, it's a dark story. It's a horrible story. It's terrible. I'm not going to go into the validity of the of the ark and the side, and there's three decks and how big it is. I'm not going to go into that. Look at the Creation Museum. A lot of people from our congregation have gone to actually see the live model and say, they say it's impressive. It's feasible how they took care of all those animals. I'm not going to go into why is there only, does he mention two animals and then seven animals? The two animals are just every animal. The seven are the clean animals so he could offer a sacrifice, which we're going to talk about next week. I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story about deliverance. Because this story of deliverance is still playing out. And it's going to have different components that were the same for no one and the same for us. And one thing you must realize before we even go into the components is the key facet of deliverance is that true deliverance is always predicated on despair. It's always predicated on despair. What do I mean by that? Without despair, there is no need for deliverance. That's always the case. If there's no problem, why do you need a solution? If there's no condemnation, why seek salvation? I think what we've done is we talk about salvation, but nobody knows about condemnation. It's real. The reason they needed an ark is because everybody was going to die. The whole world is going to die. Like you don't, for some reason, you don't let that just linger. Everybody on the face of the earth is going to die. At that time, scholars figure there probably were about as many people alive as there is today because people live for hundreds of years. So the ability for having a lot of children from one family is inevitable. So a lot of people died, a lot of animals died. If we don't need to be saved, why do we need a Savior? And so, here's just a question to think about as we go through the rest of this story. Do you think the average person today dreads the afterlife? Or are they ho-hum about it? I believe most people are ho-hum about it. Yeah, okay. I'm living today. They said the same thing in Noah's day. In the flood, we're talking about the death of hundreds of millions of people. God was threatening almost total extinction. 
of every animal species. He had no mercy for the polar bear. He didn't hand out a Coca-Cola. He said, they're going to die too. The snowy owl, they died too. They all died. It's a terrible way to start a story. And this story is still being told. Scripture says, this book says, and I can show you all kinds of places, that the future for hundreds of millions and and billions who are alive today, who mock the Lord Jesus, have something worse in store than a deluge of water or California fires. Eternal damnation. That's where, that's where the gospel begins. That's where Noah's story begins in utter despair. But we've lost the dread of despair. We really have. And because we've lost the dread, people could care less about being delivered. Humans have a hard time believing catastrophic news. We don't believe it will happen to us, it won't happen to me. Noah preached about the flood for 100 years is what the New Testament say. There's some argument that he preached for 120. Some say uh, probably only 60 to 80, but that's a long time to preach as you're hammering nails building this giant ark. But nobody listened to him. He was left at. And after the 100 years, only eight were saved. Apathy was thick. It still is. If you don't believe me, apathy is still is thick. Look at your own heart. Does it break for the lost? Does it? Does it? Where are you ho-hum about even your salvation? Yeah, I'm saved, but I wish I had a lot more things. That's for another day. I've got important things today. I'm hoping this message will cause us to kind of rekindle concern. Or are we more concerned with offending and getting people to like us? I believe, I believe that um, Noah was laughed at and it so will we be. So first, we must explain to the world why, does, why, does condemna- why is condemnation coming? Why did the flood come? Why would God threaten with a flood? Why would He even bring a flood? Why does He threaten with damnation? Why would He even bring damnation? Well, because God, there's a point where He has enough. He had enough in the old days, and there's a point where He's going to have enough to mankind. He has a limit. He has a limit. He has a limit to war. He has a limit to bloodshed. He has a limit. Ken taught something very interesting last week. If you listen to his illustration about when he, he said those cars would go and when the snow came down and they'd drive on his front lawn and, you know, it made him angry because it was his property. That was a powerful illustration if you think about that. We act as if this is our world. It's not. It's His. He can do as He pleases. We are here by invitation only. And we are the ones ruining it. It says everywhere He looked in the time of Noah, if you look at 6 verse 11, 
The earth was corrupt. The earth was filled with violence. And for the most part, you could say that's still true. Titus 3.3 says, We are all passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's how it is. It's interesting when we go to prayer partners, where we often pray for things and we have discussions before and we always wonder why is it so bad. It's always been bad. It's always been bad because people hate each other. Violence is the norm. I mean, this is the Vietnam, the picture of the Vietnam War. It was horrible. It's still horrible. So when is enough enough for God? How many more murders, wars, government lies, rapes, fraud, and human beings being trafficked is he going to allow? How much would you allow if you were God? When is enough enough? Well, in the story of Genesis, he had enough. That's why he sent his wrath in a worldwide flood. And that is why I believe he's going to bring condemnation someday because he, there's going to be points where he has enough. You could say it like this. God sends wrath for two reasons. And listen to this very closely. It's not just because he gets mad. He sends wrath for purposes. The first reason is to stop the violence. He's had enough of people hurting each other and abusing each other. So he sent the flood to stop it. It was the only way. And that's what that's why in Isaiah, this is his quote, in the end of the world, it says Jesus is going to come and trample the nations in his wrath. It's the most terrifying chapter of Scripture. It's Isaiah 63. And one of the reasons why is he says, because I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled. Basically, he's appalled at just the way the world is, and so he himself had to do something about it. You could say it like this. Look around. We don't know how to clean up our own mess. We can't even police ourselves. We have arguments about if the cops are good, should we have cops? Well, yeah, but, if, but boy, they're violent. But what if we don't have cops? Boy, it gets violent. How much cops should we have? We can't even police ourselves, so there has to be a day where God steps in. That's what wrath's about. He has had enough. Don't you think he's had enough? I mean, just watch the news. You've had enough, and you're not holy. The second reason he sends his wrath, and, and this is a very interesting part, is that wrath is needed to erase what's wrong so we can begin again. As I was studying this, I came across this quote that was uh, evaluating chapter 7, verse 11. So if you look at verse 11, it says, Chapter 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were opened. So the, it's almost the idea that the heavens above unleashed themselves, and the, heavens un, the waters underneath exploded. And so this is what one writer said. And you've got to listen close. He said, in verse 11, we find two sources of water which are intended to recall the waters above and below of chapter 1, 6, and 7. He's saying he's referring back to the way things were originally created, where he separated waters above from below. But what's happening on this chapter, chapter 7, is the flood is uncreating and returning the earth to a pre-creation period 
where there were only waters. And in verse 15, the animals which joined Noah and his family on board are further defined as those in which there was the breath of life. This phrase recalls the creation account where he gave the breath of life. So what he's saying is he's saying the purpose of the wrath of the flood is the flood is meant to uncreate. It's meant to erase and start over again. This isn't a matter of God simply being angry and unloading fury. He wants a better world for us. If you're an artist and you've ever drawn a picture, I had where I had to draw, I had uh, pencil projects and we had to draw like a bowl of fruit. And I wasn't that good. There were some people in my class that were amazing. And I can remember for, I mean, after about an hour and a half, I did not like what I drew, so I had to erase three quarters of it, kept the apple that I thought was pretty good, but I did the whole thing over again. Or any of you like those cooking shows? You like those cooking? Raise your hand if you like those cooking shows. Any of you ever seen Sugar Rush? Did you ever watch Sugar Rush? Man, my daughter got me watching that. It's where they make pastries, and they make a whole batch of dough to make these cookies, and, and then they'll, they'll put it in the oven, and it will burn. And they'll, man, we've got to start all over, and we only have an hour left. And they start all over. They recreate it and they trash what they already made because what they want you to do is taste the product when it's good. God wants us to have a good world. There's too much poison of sin in the dough. You had to get rid of it. You got to look at it like this because say, wow, he's getting rid of all of, cre all of creation, all of people so he can start over. That's kind of mean. What he wants you to see is he is willing he is willing to throw away so we can have glory. Like when you taste a good cookie, there's just glory. And we get to heaven, and there's no more sin. There's no more murder. It's going to be incredible. It's worth it. It's worth starting over again. Scripture actually says that in small ways, wrath is already occurring. This is what I find interesting. I was reading a book on this. Romans 1.8 says how wrath is currently being revealed. And so he's currently using punishment, wrath, to get us to hate sin. He's allowing the consequences of our sin to punish us. Did you ever hear the stories like when a kid is found in a backyard and he's smoking a cigarette and his mom catches him? So she brings the whole pack and makes him smoke all of them so he'll never smoke again. It's the same thing that, all right, you want this sin? God is allowing your sin to punish you. That's what Romans 1, 18 is all about where he just gives them over. Go ahead. Because what it does is his wrath is going to hate, cause you to hate it so much that you are going to want to start over. Be brand new. No longer be a slave to the garbage. Go to the book of Joel. This is really fascinating. Because Joel is really, it's a book of how wrath works. Joel is a book of wrath. You got Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and you go to the book of Joel. Joel is written to Israel. And Israel was ignoring God. Israel was following idols. Israel was just partying like crazy. Bunch of drinkers. Wine bibbers. And they're the hardest to reach with the gospel. 
I'm having a good time. I just, just leave me alone. Having too good a time. And so what he does is this whole book of Joel is about how God unloads wrath, and it's almost surgical to get people back. Watch what it says in verse 5. He's saying, okay, awake you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. And what he's going to do, he's going to say, you want wine? I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to punish you. So what he does in verse 8 is he sends locusts in verse 7 to, to basically, those are, those are bugs that eat all of the vegetation. He sends the locusts, which causes them to, they're deprived of their wine. So in verse 8, they start lamenting. They start waking up saying, ah, I've been sinning. And then it's to lead to verse 13 where they, God says, put on sackcloth and lament, wail. Because you can't, you can't not only not have wine, but you can't even offer grain offerings. Wail that you can't meet with God. It should lead to chapter 2, 18 to 25. Listen to this. Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and then he had pity on his people. Because they repented, because they returned, he had pity. And then he said, I'm going to send you grain and wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied again. And the whole point is, God doesn't send wrath because he hates you. He sends wrath because he wants you back. And then when he knows he has you back, he'll give you things. But he knows when he gives it to you, that isn't what you, it's, it's, it's not the thing that, that matters, it's him. Repentance and wrath gets us away from the thing, the idol, so we will run back to him. And when we finally find him as our Savior, we won't need anything. So then he's able to give it to us because we're not captivated by it. So some of you have miserable lives because God's trying to get your attention. Well, let's go back to Genesis. Let's go to the second part of deliverance. The first part is that God has enough. He really does. He has enough, so he sends wrath. The second part is he doesn't send wrath on everyone. That's what's fascinating about deliverance. He loves delivering his friends. And he does this by warning them. Genesis 6.13. He goes to Noah, and he said to Noah, Hey, Noah, I'm going to tell you something. I have determined, he's kind of telling Noah's secret, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and I'm going to destroy them. So Noah, verse 14, make yourself an ark. Make rooms in the ark. Verse 17, because I'm going to bring some water. Verse 19, and everything's going to die. But not you if you obey me. God doesn't send wrath on everyone. Verse 7-1, And the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He likes Noah. He loves Noah. And he does all he can to protect his friends. God protects his friends. Listen to this verse in Amos 3-7. This is really interesting. For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants. 
And by nothing, he's talking about judgment. Noah was God's friend, so God warned him of the wrath to come. And he had a hundred years to wait. And Noah then warned people for a hundred years, but those people laughed at him. So you could probably say it like this. If you're laughed at, it might be because you're God's friend. Are you laughed at? I don't want to be. I don't want to be laughed at. How did Noah become God's friend? There's a lot of discussion on this because it says Noah did what God told him to do, but he keeps saying Noah's a righteous man. But it was because he first believed God. Listen to this quote by James Murphy, and we'll walk through it. And I think this is the same way we become God's friend. So if you'd like to be a friend that God tells secrets to, if you want to be God's friend that God warns, if you want to be God's friend that he gives secret information to, this is how you do it. The same way as Noah. Because Noah walked with God, and we find that in 8 and 9. Look at 8 and 9. 6, 8 and 9. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So he said, because Noah walked with God and responded by a faith that leads to obedience or led to obedience. That's 6.22. Look at 22. In verse 21, he says, Take with you every sort of food that's eaten, stored up. It shall serve as food for you. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So you could say, because Noah walked with God, he had a relationship with God, and he found favor with God, and then he believed God. And the way you could tell he believed God is he obeyed God. God chose Noah to be the instrument by which his mercy was extended. So then Noah became God's, one of God's solutions to help the world which we find in 7, 1 through 5. Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark and you and all your household, for I've seen you are righteous. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals. Verse 4, For in seven days I will send rain, and every living thing I've made will blot out. Verse 5, And Noah did all the Lord commanded. And then verse 7, And Noah and his sons and wife and his sons with him went into the ark to escape. To escape. To escape. This works the same way for us. Go to John 15. Watch what John 15 says. This is Jesus talking. John 15, 14 to 15. He says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and listen to what he says to them. Don't go to that slide yet. Keep it on the last one. Here's what he says in verse 14. He says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you. Noah believed God and his obedience led to right living. He responded to faith that leads to obedience. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Remember, he tells his servants things. If you're his friend, he tells you his will. He reveals it to you, as he did to Noah. Are you his friend? Do you love him enough that you'll do what he says? Yeah, but it's hard to do what he says. But do you trust him by faith? I had this um, 
one of the oddest phrases I ever had in Bible school. I had this uh, teacher that I would write notes. I had my Bible study notes, but I had this other notebook where I wrote basically jewels from Dr. Thrasher because this guy would all of a sudden stop and just say something that was just profound. And I have a whole book of his quotes. And there's one quote, I never understood it for the longest time. And he said, here's what faith is. If God tells you to eat dirt, you do it knowing good will come from it. And I wrote that down. I'm like, what does that even mean? And he would say stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't buy that. But then, as I started learning about God, a lot of times in his word, or even in when you're convicted about things, you don't, it sounds like he's asking you to eat dirt. He's asking you to do things that sounds horrible. But you obey because you trust him. That's really what faith is. Faith is doing something even when it doesn't make sense. Noah, build an ark. What? Person who lives in 2015, don't, don't leave your spouse. Don't, don't get drunk. Stop, stop getting drunk. Why don't you use some of the money to help people around you? Don't always spend it on things yeah but that's hard but do you trust him do you love him i really think true believers live differently they just do they obey the word they're kind they keep no record of wrongs they don't complain you don't hold grudges you forgive you don't get insulted but that's hard i like holding grudges i like being mad well, then you're probably not his friend. You probably are not his friend. Well, here's what happens when you become his friend. Not only does he reveal information, but he provides for you an escape. If we go back to Genesis 7-1, he provides Noah the escape route. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous. And then so what you have is you have verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven opened. So the waters came and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days. On that very same day, this is verse 13, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast, according to its kind. And all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to his kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all of flesh, went in, as God had commanded him. And here's the cool part, verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. God did it. This is God's escape plan. Listen to Isaiah 26. You can turn there. This is a really cool verse. Isaiah 26, 20. Come, my people, my people, enter your chambers, 
and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while, while until the fury has passed by. Come into God's room. The door will be shut and the fury will pass you by. God has an escape plan for you. Jesus said, I'm the door. Jesus says, any man who believes in me shall have eternal life and shall not perish. Jesus says, you will pass from death to life. He is the escape plan. It's funny, we think people think they can derive their own escape plan. They think they can swim and make it on their own. They think they can outfox God. But listen to this. I want you to go to this verse. This is Hebrews chapter 2. I know I'm making you turn a lot. To, I'm just showing you how deliverance is all through this book. But look at this verse. Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 3, you could actually start in verse 2. It's talking about the message, the message of the gospel. Hebrews 2.2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Meaning this message that Jesus brought, if we neglect that salvation, how shall we escape? So he's, you could say it like this, how can we escape God's judgment if we escape God's escape, great escape plan, if we reject God's escape plan. That's what salvation means, God's escape plan. So how are we going to escape wrath if we ignore his escape plan? I can derive my own. I'm a good person. No, you're not. There were a lot of good people probably that died in the flood. But God has one escape plan. And he says here, how shall we escape if we ignore his escape plan? Well, there's other religions. All right, good luck. Good luck. I want you to be honest about this story of the gospel. Do you really believe it? I mean, does it really... Matthew 26, actually 24, 36 says this. And I know my sermon's not that polished today. I was trying to polish it, and I'm just like, ah... I just want you to try to, just trying to be honest. Look at Matthew 23, or 24, verse 36. Jesus is talking about the end of the world. And he says, um, concerning that day and hour, that's the end of the world. No one knows. No one knows when it's coming. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Jesus subjected himself to the will of the Father and he didn't even know when the end of the world's coming. But the Father only. And then he writes in 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The days of Noah. Yeah, when a great flood came. 
This is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. Well, what was, the day, what was it like in the days of Noah? Verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, watching a lot of those cooking shows. They were drinking, having a blast. They were marrying and giving in marriage. They were planning their futures. They were living it up until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all, all away. They were unaware. They were unaware. But his friends aren't unaware. You're not unaware. What is our escape plan? Listen to this. You turn to God from idols, from partying, from drinking, from money, from living off of your, your retirement account as your idol. That's what's going to save me. You've turned to God from that to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That, that in and of itself, he raised him from the dead. We believe some strange things. And if we believe that, don't you think it's just as strange that wrath is going to come? So it says, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us, delivers, gives us a plan of escape from the wrath to come. Are you his friend? Are you Jesus' friend? That's really the final question. Are you his friend? If you're his friend, I think you need to start warning people even if they laugh at you. Because as it says there, people aren't going to be ready for it. If you're his friend, obey him. Do what he says. Become the laughing stock again. Become somebody to laugh at again. How, that's my challenge for you. Be, become somebody that people think is strange again. Not like everybody else. Who places their hope in more than just parties and fun and relaxation and recreation, but in the living God. That's where your satisfaction should come from. If anything, I just want this this message about Noah to say this isn't a fuzzy story of green alligators and long neck geese. This is about there's going to come a day when his wrath is going to come. California is not something that is aberrant. It's going to be the norm. 